only 4% of universities in the U.S. are R1 research institutions, and Temple University is one of them. This means 100% of students have the opportunity to participate in hands-on learning and research with world-class faculty. With over 600 academic programs across 17 schools and colleges, Philadelphia's largest public university provides students with a rich variety of opportunities and propels graduates to succeed in their careers. Temple University. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. visit Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Welcome back to Behind the Knife. This is Patrick Georgioff. I really hope you've been enjoying all the great content coming from our new specialty teams. And starting in July, we're going to have a regular rotation of clinical challenges in surgery and journal reviews for you every single week. You're also going to start seeing some special episodes and series being released on Thursdays. We've got so much stuff planned. Uh, it's all very, very exciting. We're pleased to have the teams on board. I'm also happy to announce that our brand new, super fancy, easy to use, and beautiful website being built by 500 Designs is almost complete. This is going to be a game changer for Behind the Knife, and we cannot wait to share it with you. Now, today we're joined again by Dr. Gretchen Swarji, who is an associate professor of surgery, vascular surgery, at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. And on our last episode, we discussed the best case, worst case tool, an incredibly useful concept that can be used to talk to surgery patients and their families about difficult decisions and goals of care. So if you haven't listened to that episode yet, I highly recommend it. Without exaggeration, I think this may be one of the most useful episodes that we've put out on Behind the Knife. Now, Gretchen is an expert in surgical decision-making, informed consent, advanced directives, and end-of-life care. And today, we're going to pick her brain for practical tips on how to talk to patients about surgery and end-of-life decisions. Now, drawing from her extensive experience in this, in this realm, Gretchen has created a list of seven habits for highly effective surgery communication just for behind the knife. Gretchen, what are these seven habits for highly effective communication? All right, Patrick, here they are. The first one is be clear about the goal. Two is stay away from anatomy and physiology. Three is remember the downsides of surgery, at least for patients, are more than just the complications. Four is help patients anticipate and prepare. Five is ask people about their hopes and fears. Six is make a recommendation and show your work. And seven is attend to emotion. Phenomenal. And all these are going to be posted in our show notes uh, for future reference. So let's start from the very top. Number one, be clear about the goal. Yeah. So at the end of the day, we spend a lot of time talking about how surgery might fix your problem, what the disease is and what the treatment is. And we often, and I mean like more than 50% of the time, often close to 70 or 80% of the time, forget to say, what is the goal of surgery? What are we trying to achieve here? And at the end of the day, surgery can do one of four things. It can help you live longer. It can help you feel better. It can prevent disability and it can help you make a diagnosis. And if you don't mention those things, then you actually haven't told patients why we're doing surgery. And I often start a case and say to the resident, why are we doing this? And they'll say, well, there's a blockage in the SFA or the aneurysm meets criteria. And I'll say, why are we doing this? And I have to ask that question four or five times till we get to something like, well, their foot will stop hurting 
or maybe we'll prevent them from losing their leg, or we will extend their life by treating their aneurysm. And so to the degree that we don't tell people why we're doing, and we're saying, we're just going to cut your cancer out, and we don't explain what that might get them, they can't make a good decision about whether surgery is worth it for them. There was a great study in the um, late 90s in the UK where they went and interviewed patients with, uh, who were scheduled for carotid end arterectomy, and they said, well, what are the risks? And the patients were really good about that. They knew the risks. And they said, well, what, what, what are the benefits of this operation? The patients were like, well, it's going to make my memory better or the ringing in my ears are going to go away, or that, you know, my vision will get better. And, you know, the only thing carotid endarterectomy does is prevent stroke. And so if you think that you are going to get, you know, better memory, and it's worth those risks to you, and the surgery doesn't actually do that for you, then you have made a miscalculation if you're the patient. So I think we really need to be very clear. What is the goal? What are we trying to achieve? And there are only four things that we could say, live longer, feel better, prevent disability, make a diagnosis. Amazing. That's so simple. And yet, as I'm here, listening here, listen to you talk about this, I can think of times where I have probably, or certainly um, uh, skimmed over the goal. Again, the overarching picture, which seems to me in those patient conversations is where you should start and spend a significant portion of your time before you get down to the nitty gritty of uh, the benefits and risks of that surgery. Yeah, absolutely. So the next one, yeah, stay away from anatomy and physiology. And you know, the, what I'm going to say is going to sound snarky, but it's not, I just want to be clear that all of us do this. And we were all taught the same way that the idea is that we're trying to get people to understand their disease and their treatment, but that actually doesn't help people figure out whether they really want surgery or whether surgery is right for them. And the way I say it is like, you don't have to know how to do a Whipple in order to figure out whether you want a Whipple. And I think at the end of the day, um, you know, when we, you know, my lab, we've been audio recording conversations for years, and I have a library of almost 600 conversations. And we all start with some sort of like, we pull up the CAT scan, we say, this is you slice like bread. This is your liver. This is a tumor in your liver and I can take it out. And, you know, as a vascular surgeon, I show an angiogram and I talk about going around the blockage. Um, You know, I have a wonderful surgeon in my cohort who starts his conversations by saying the esophagus has three layers and then he describes the layers, right? And it comes from this like deeply genuine space of, I want to support people's autonomy by giving them the kind of information that I have as a clinician that has helped me figure out what is right for you. But at the end of the day, we are never going to be able to change that information asymmetry because we've been through med school and residency and we have all of this experience and we cannot possibly unload that on people in a 20 minute office conversation or in the hospital when people are sick. And so given that we can't sort of change this asymmetry of information, we really need to focus on what kinds of things do people need in order to make a decision? And the way I liken to it, it's like if the plumber came to your house and um, you needed your toilet because your toilet wasn't working and the plumber spent all the time talking about like all that stuff in the back of the tank and how the, how he was going to fix it. But the plumber never once said, this is how long it's going to work. This is how long it's going to last. And this is what's going to cost you. Because honestly, it may be interesting to know how your toilet works, 
But if you don't know how well it's going to work, how long it's going to last and what it's going to cost you, it doesn't matter whether you know what, what's going on in the back of the tank or what part needs to be fixed. That actually doesn't help you figure out whether it's worth it for you. And while I understand patients may want to understand what you're doing inside of them, and I don't have a problem with, you know, drawing pictures of the colon like we were talking about in the last podcast, I think we need to do that after we've decided whether to go forward with surgery. Like right. once we figured out surgery is a good idea, you could, people might, like, I think people kind of want to know. And you could say, do you want to understand? You, do you want me to show you what this operation is like? But if you're going to have a conversation about cholecystectomy and you're drawing a gallbladder and painting things in green and drawing the cystic duct, like that actually doesn't help them figure out if they want it. Right. And I think that's, uh, well, uh, especially for some of myself too, take a little bit of mental gymnastics to sit there for a minute and think about what you just told me about the difference between these, you know, drawing pictures and talking about anatomy and some percentages of risks versus what that actual goal is for surgery, which is a good segue into the next, uh, the next uh, habit for highly effective surgery communication. And that's that to remember that the downsides of surgery are more than just complications. What do you mean by that? Yeah. So, I mean, I think, again, we've all been taught to do the same three thing and we sort of list these risks, right? There's a 50% chance of this or there's a 10% chance of that, or, you know, it's always, you know, bleeding, infection, death, stroke, heart attack. And the problem is that there are actually multiple time, multiple um, layers of bad things that can happen to patients. And I think I put them into the sort of three layers. And in my lab, we call it the bin of bad shit, though I don't think Melina Kibbe is going to allow me to publish that in her um, journal. But the first bin is that you have to go through surgery, right? Surgery hurts. And you need to recover from it. And so some operations, that's not a big deal, but a lot of operations, particularly if you're doing a big laparotomy, you know, that, that is a real recovery. The second bin is really the bin of things that could happen. And so some of that are the risks that we disclose already. But there's always these bumps along. Like many people are surprised when they have postoperative urinary retention or postoperative ileus, right? Like that is something that might happen. But when it happens, it's pretty annoying to the patient and we should prepare them for that. The other thing that might happen is that they may have a real change in their functional status. And that means a lot of different things for different people. For older adults, it may mean a change in their cognitive function. But for many people, like they may have a change in their bowel function forever. You take out their colon and they poop three times a day instead of once a day. And we forget to say that because in our mind, it's not like sort of this risk thing. And then the fourth thing is like that unknown. Like I have a few patients who just had bad things happen to them after surgery, their leg has been swollen forever, or they have a numb spot. And I know my operation did it, but I don't know how. Right. And so I think that we need to warn patients that anytime we operate on them, there's this sort of unknown factor of something that may be worse for them. And the third bin is really this idea that we may not reach our goal. Like we may, you know, we can take your pancreas cancer out, but you don't end up living much longer. You know, you only get six months or you only get 12 months. You know, we will do this bypass and it fails in a few weeks or a few months, right? That we don't meet the goal and you've gone through all of this um, for what is going to feel like nothing. And so I really think those three bins are important to remember. It's not just risks and complications, but all of those things. Right. And, and so number one being the pain and recovery that comes with surgery. Number two being things that might happen to you, which are distinct from bonafide complications. Includes instance, complications, and but includes other complications. things too. 
And that includes like an ileus, for example. We don't say an ileus is a complication, and yet essentially every patient that has a major abdominal operation develops an ileus. And on day five, where they have the NG tube in there and they're bloated, they're going, well, what's what's going on? Well, important thing, this is something that needs to be described to them. And also functional status, right? That's a huge thing that needs to be spelled out beyond just actual, you know, specific complications. And then the third part uh, that despite the fact that you're embarking on surgery to reach a certain goal, you may not be able to reach that goal. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. Okay. You know, we're doing this for pain. We're taking your gallbladder out because you have belly pain. It might not help you. Sure. Your pain could be from something else. And I'm willing to try by taking your gallbladder out, but we may be right back here in three weeks with pain. And I think all of us like sort of hate having those patients come back in and they're so disappointed. But I actually think if you warn them ahead of time, they're way less disappointed because then they know we tried. All right. Number four, help patients to anticipate (coughs) and prepare. Yeah. And this is, you know, sort of what we talked about in the last podcast that when I talk about what it is like to experience surgery, I want to tell a story. I want to explain that, you know, this is what I'm hoping for. And I think even if you just did the best case, that is at least a story people can hold on to and then sort of imagine what it would be like to have surgery. So I think this idea of thinking through what it would be like to have surgery, I also think like, what would a success be? What is the story of a successful operation? This is what it would look like. This is how I see it. I'll go on to number five, huh? So number five is this idea about asking people about their hopes and fears. And I think this is something that we forget to do. We kind of like sort of run our pre-op conversations like a lecture, but I think it's really helpful to understand where people are and what they're hoping for, particularly this idea of people who you're worried that they want something from surgery that's not possible. And I think, you know, we were talking about it a little bit in the last podcast, you know, what if the family's like, oh, we still want this or the best case scenario is, you know, that's fine for us. I think if you're really skeptical that this is such a bad idea that we shouldn't be moving forward to them, forward with it, and they just don't understand what you've told them, I might say to them, what are you hoping for if we do surgery? And if they tell you some story that is deeply implausible, like you could not imagine was possible, I think at the very least you have to say, yeah, I would hope for that too, but I don't think that's possible with surgery. And I think it's a check. It's a way to check to make sure that they have some understanding or belief in what you said. Can you give me an example of a time when you sat down with the family and and the patient and went through the best case, worst case scenario like we did in the the prior episode and you thought surgery was going to be rough, the outcomes were going to be rough and the, the, the family wanted to proceed, but, but you took a moment, you paused and went back to really elicit those preferences and ask them about their hopes and fears. You know, with ongoing conversation, it turned out that y'all needed to get aligned more closely to, to ensure that they understand what you were actually talking about. Yeah. I mean, I think it's funny. I think it actually goes in the reverse more often, right? Like it, it reassures me more that, oh, they heard what I said about the best case scenario and this is okay for them you know, and, and they sort of spit it right back at at me. And they say, you know, we get that it's going to be a long recovery and then we're going to move on to do these other things. I think, you know, it's the people who, you know, the ones you're looking for are the ones you're like, well, I think if we do surgery, we can keep you alive in the ICU for another week or two. And that's the best case scenario. And they say, 
well, really we need him to be home for, you know, Johnny's graduation in six months. And I think you say something like, gosh, I wish, I, I wish that was something we could get you with surgery, but I really don't think that's possible. And then you have to sort of go back into it. I also think that like, it's really hard to sort of figure out what the burdens of treatment are for people that like they're willing to tolerate. Like, are they really willing to be in a nursing home? Are they really willing to, um, you know, be on a ventilator? And you sort of say like, well, what are you, what are you worried about? What are you afraid of? If you're stuck in the hospital, what kinds of things are you afraid of? And so I think talking to people about hopes and fears is really an important thing. And I imagine you might be surprised sometimes when you really elicit, ask them yeah. point blank, what are your hopes and fears from this? I imagine that's surprising. I've, I've had patients tell me uh, something very specific about their family member that, you know, dad wouldn't want this. Yeah. And, yeah. and again, you can loop that back in the conversation. I'll say, you know, either maybe I can give you that or are you with surgery or maybe we can't. And that's extremely informative and, and, and it's what's important. To the patient, right? And they may say something really simple, like we just don't want him to suffer. I want him to not be hurting. And then you could say, well, let's let's talk about how to achieve that. Right. So number six is make a recommendation and show your work. Yeah, the show right? your work part is the critical piece, right? I think we don't want to sort of run in and steamroll people, particularly when we're on the fence about what to do. And I think the idea is to learn enough about them to say, gosh, surgery does not sound like a good idea for you. Like I think you know, we're going to put you through all this stuff. And you just told me that you want to be able to do, you know, run a marathon or do all of these things. Like that's just not possible. And I don't love the idea of putting you through all of these things just to get you to a place where you said, that's not great for me. And so I really don't think we should do surgery because of that. And I think, you know, it can go the other way too. Like, you know, you just told me that your life is pretty good right now. And this operation is designed to keep your life like this. Now there's some downsides to it, but you told me you're, you're the, you're a kind of person who's willing to take that chance in order to protect the life that you have right now and prevent this disability in the future. So I really think we should move forward with surgery. Um, and so I think this, it's this idea of saying, um, you know, I worry that we ask people to choose, particularly at the end of life and families are sitting there like feeling like, I pulled the plug. I made my dad die. And really what's made their dad die is that they were sick and the operation we had to potentially make them better really wasn't worth it. And if we own some of that for them, it is a lot less stressful for them. And I really worry, like we go in and we say like, do you want us to try? Or do you want us to start your heart again? If it stops, like there's only one answer to that question. Yeah, of course I do. And I think we'd be way better off to say, gosh, I really don't think we should be doing CPR. He's in a dying process. And I worry that that's just going to make us, you know, prolong that dying process. And that's consistent with the kinds of things that they've told you about what they were hoping for them. And I really think that, you know, when we own it or we help them own it, it's a lot less stressful for them. I think the, the do you want question is, is fraught in, in so many different ways. Yeah. All right. Number seven, attend to emotion. Yeah, I mean, I think this is one of those things that you can steal from palliative care and surgeons can do well. It's not that hard. 
And part of the problem, I think, is that we always go into the room with an agenda. And what we're trying to do is make a treatment decision and move forward. I think that's really hard to do with a patient or a family or both who are in an emotional state, right? At the very least, surgery is scary, but oftentimes it's sad or they're really, really frustrated. And they're frustrated because it's been one event after another. And then you're like trying to have a conversation about should we operate or not? The only way to get them into a rational space is actually to attend to their emotion first. And then once you've pulled them down out of their hot state, really try to have a rational conversation about what to do. And so I think, you know, the palliative care clinicians have this nurse mnemonic and it's super helpful. So N is naming. And honestly, like when I'm in this hot state, because they're screaming at me, it's the only one I can actually remember. And it's really straightforward, right? All you do is say, this is sad. You get called to the ICU and you're talking to some daughter and she's screaming at you. She's like, she was doing fine. They told me everything was going great. You know, it's not a conversation at that point about, you know, seeds and diverticulitis and muscularis mucosis. The conversation should start with this sucks. This sucks. So then um, you is this idea of understanding. It makes complete sense to me why you would feel that way. Things seem like they were going well and you're frustrated and I get it, Right. That is a very reasonable reaction. You don't want to say, I totally understand what you're feeling because you don't, you're not them, but you can validate their feelings by saying it makes sense. I get it. R is a respecting statement. So um, that is this idea of saying um, you have been such a great patient. You have done everything we asked. And I think a lot of our colleagues in oncology, you know, they have to give this bad news about like the cancer is worse, the cancer has come back. And that is a really sad moment. And saying to the patient, you've done everything we've asked. You are such a good patient. I'm sorry that this happened. I think in the ICU and you're staring at this, you know, this woman who's screaming at you about her mom, clearly you love your mother so much. You have been here every day advocating for her, right? It's a praise statement. Um, The S is really this idea of support. And I think patients really worry that we're going to abandon them. And it's a a really straightforward one. I'm here. I'm here to take care of you. I'm going to be here taking care of you and your mother, you know, until we figure out what the best thing to do and, you know, really see this through with you. I'm not leaving. I'm not going anywhere. Um, And then E, I think, is really the hardest one for me, and I don't use it that often, but it's a good trick for some of the things that I think we get from patients and families. And the E stands for exploring, and the way to ask it is, tell me more. Tell me more about what you mean when you're saying that your mother is a fighter. Tell me more about, you know, this story. And I think sometimes people just need to vent And that's a way to attend to their emotion. Tell me more about what happened. Tell me more about what you're, you know, what other people told you. I think that the E one is hard, um, but I actually think if you can just remember, tell me more, it's a really good way to let other people talk and let them talk it out. Um, And then the last thing is this idea of when patients and families ask you, isn't there anything else that you can do? And I actually think as a surgeon, that is like the worst question I could be asked because I can always think of something else I can do. 
But that's not really their question, right? Because the answer to that question is like, sure, I can do a fourth time redo bypass with PTFE below the knee to a really shitty target. Like that's not going to achieve anybody's goals. Sure, I can do it. But that is not the right answer to the question of, isn't there anything else you could do? The answer is, I wish. Because it says, I'm on your side. I really want your dad to be better. It sucks that we're here, but I don't have anything that can meet their goals. And I wish I did. And it's such an easy thing to say, but we forget it all the time. And then we have this like crazy conversation talking people out of their fourth time redo distal bypass. Absolutely. And that, that nurse mnemonic is, uh, is, is a good one. It's a good one. Remember N for name, U for understanding, R for respecting, uh, providing a respecting statement, S for support, and E for exploring. Um, now, you know, in the end, uh, every patient is different, right? Every scenario is different. Every surgery and decision-making process is different. But I think what we've learned uh, uh, from from you today and in, in, in our, our last episode is that you know, good quality communication with, with family and patients and good quality scenario planning, you know, really should be a constant uh, to, um, to our care as surgeons, to our discussions as surgeons, to, to allow us to have these difficult conversations and to feel confident that we're doing the right thing for our patients and our families. Yeah, I do a lot of talks and often people will stand up at the end and say, why are we teaching surgeons to do this? Shouldn't we get someone else to do it? And I actually, you know, I tell them I'm a little offended by that convert, that question. And the reason I'm offended is that I think if we just wanted to be technicians, we could have just been aerospace engineers. I actually think surgeons really, really care about these preoperative conversations. It's the formation of most of our patient um, clinician relationship. And um, it's just a skill, right? It's a skill like any other skill, whether you're practicing in anastomosis or figuring out how to diagnose different um different illnesses. Um, It's a skill. And like all other skills, there's good tricks and it takes a little bit of practice. But once you understand the kinds of tools and techniques you can use to do it well, it's actually not that hard. And I think we as surgeons, like in general, I think we're good at what we've been taught, but we could innovate and advance and use some of these skills to do better for sure. Right now, I want to thank you for putting together one of those tools for us that allow us uh, to simplify that process and to, you know, for folks like me to wrap my head around uh, these difficult conversations. So, uh, Dr. Shorsey, thanks again for joining us on Behind the Knife. Uh, more information uh, from Gretchen's team can be found via the Patient Preferences Project at patientpreferences.org. So make sure you check out the link in our show notes. And if you can, uh, spare two minutes, leave us a review. Uh, this matters for what we do uh, behind the scenes of Behind the Knife. Until next time, dominate the day. Until next time, dominate the day. 